For March 11th, 2013, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 245, Uncanny Valley of Polygonal Animal Space Pilots. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Matt Rather is off stalking high-value targets in the latest Assassin's Creed game, which will be hitting the streets soon. Uh, he is off adventuring, I'm sure, syncing up with some assassin in historical periods of time. I think, but they have to progress uh, chronologically, right? So he's in like... Uh, what, like he's in Metternich's cabinet in like mid-19th century Austria or something at this point? Uh, something along the line. But no, speaking of Assassin's Creed Four and the 19th century, uh, PETA issued a wonderful summary of the spirit of 19th century literature this week. Uh, and this is to inform our question of the week. And it reads, I quote, Joe Schmo, who plays this game in his mother's basement in the safety and comfort of his home, will feel a sense of accomplishment by killing this whale. That's right. PETA is upset at whaling that is featured in Assassin's Creed 4. Uh, and yeah, and if you ever want to summarize Moby Dick, that's pretty much what it's about. Uh, so, panel, small panel, elite it's squad. Just me. Just I'm you. a tiny little panel. We tiniest got little panel in the world. Seal Team 2 is in the house tonight. Uh, so, panel, your question of the week on this week where we celebrate, uh, in, in, I guess, simulated assassination of cetaceans, uh, which is alliterative if I ever heard it. What practice from video games should PETA be more upset about than the whaling in Assassin's Creed 4? Going in alphabetical order and not starting <laughs> with me. Mark Lee, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great, Pete. I'm still angry at the universe for taking away uh, an hour of sleep from me last night. Actually, I should be angry at the United States Congress, right? It's, uh, it's a civil act. It has nothing really to do with uh, the heavens and the rotation of the planets and, and the stars and whatnot. Um, yeah. I'm angry. That's what I'm trying to say is I'm angry. Okay. Well, so, it's time was conceived of in New Zealand, to be fair. It's not a strictly American institution. Damn you, Kiwis! <laughs> the original purpose of it was, I think, for cataloging insects. Damn some- you, Kiwis! <laughs> okay. So we should talk a little bit about what PETA is and isn't um, in a little bit, but let's just say for the sake of the argument that what PETA is trying to do is to get people to treat uh, what treat animals ethically, uh, for ethical treatment of animals. Yes, that's and that is what the organization is called. Um, and the way to treat uh, to promote ethical treatment of animals is uh, to uh, what to. to, to Take away the sort of things that desensitize us to violence against animals, right? right? Um, and what is the probably the most prevalent example of violence against animals in video games these days is Angry Birds, right? How many Uh-oh. millions of copies of Angry Birds are there? Um, the birds are totally disposable, right? Each level, each time you try to play the level, you pull the bird back, you fling it at the pigs, and the bird inevitably... There's no choice about this. The bird inevitably just like you know poof, disappears in a, in a puff of uh, uh, in a puff of feathers. Now, even <laughs> even when you you know you you you're good at the level and you have some birds left over from that, you don't get the sense of like the birds are. You get more points for keeping those birds, but you don't get to take the birds with you to the next level. They're just gone. Right? I, I mean, so we're we're talking about desensitization of violence against against a- animals. Angry Birds is the clear number one culprit in video games. 
Yeah. Interestingly enough, if you look for Angry Birds on PETA's website, you find uh, the Angry Birds iconography, people dressed in Angry Bird costumes, protesting KFC, which is a very complex relationship <laughs> of symbols, where it's like the birds, are they on your side? So the, the idea is that you were going to use these sort of suicidal effigy, kamikaze, divine wind, uh, <laughs> hollow-boned, uh, legless creatures to, um, to, to protest similar Hollow-boned, legless creatures. <laughs> Jeez. It's like, yeah, 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 I guess the birds are angry. That's true. That's definitely true. I mean, it's, it's nothing new that, you know, if, if you pause and scrutinize Angry Birds a little bit, then the uh, mechanics of it are a little bit weird, right? But it's just going to get weirder because I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure I read in the news that an Angry Birds, what, television show and or movie have been greenlit. And, uh, you know, sort of like the corporeal beings of these birds will soon grace us with narrative stories. And we should start to care about these birds and their uh, whether they, you know, live against their battles against the, the pigs or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at a lot of stuff online that says that PETA is protesting angry birds. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure any of it is actually real. I'm pretty sure that it is all parodies and not real <laughs> Um, wow. Yeah, this is something from a Filipino news site uh, about people protesting Angry Birds. And those pictures look really heavily photoshopped. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, we think that uh, influencing our children into thinking that killing pigs and destroying their homes is okay. And it is not. If you think that demolishing the shanties around the metro is inhumane. This does, this story is too, too bogged down. I think satirizing both Angry Birds and Filipino politics is more than I can take in one joke. <laughs> so well, the violence against the pigs isn't even the worst part of it, right? I mean, at least there's a sense of, like, there's a there's a injustice yep. that needs to be corrected, right? Like, they, oh, they, they so are deserving targets of, of the vengeance, whereas the birds are sort of just, you know, the kamikaze just totally dis- disposed of wantonly. This, per- this depends on whether you're an ovo-lacto-vegetarian or a vegan. Because all the pigs are doing uh, is mm, eggs, right? And is eating eggs just as bad as eating chickens? And that, like, wait, is wait, eating- are they eating the eggs or are they taking like, the, the fertilized eggs with uh, that actually have baby, uh, baby birds in them? So you're saying that it's a genocide campaign, that the, that the pigs are trying to genocide the angry birds by stealing the next generation of birds. And are not- I'm, I'm, just, I'm just reporting what, <laughs> what I see in the game, okay? <laughs> It's not explained. You're the one who said genocide. What? Look, hey, all right. Whether I say it or not, that doesn't affect whether or not it's actually happening. All right. <laughs> it's not about whether we think there's genocide. It's about whether there is genocide, and whether I then we can say that there is. Okay. That's enough, not how enough, it's, this, enough of this genocide talk. Pete, tell me what you think uh, Peter should be going after. What do I? Oh, okay, so we're gonna get off. We're not gonna do a full hour long podcast about cruelty to animals and Angry Birds. No, that's and, next week. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um. Honestly, okay, so PETA's issue with – I'm going to read another PETA quote about Assassin's, Fe- Assassin's Creed 4, um, <clears throat> and, I, and I quote, uh, This would be a different story if the game portrayed the cruelty and horror experienced when a whale is literally fleeing for her life and then shot with a harpoon. To be fair, they would throw the harpoon at the whale, and the arrow we're talking about, I don't think they shoot it, or even several harpoons, and it would almost certainly take several harpoons to take down a whale, and forced to struggle for hours or be hacked apart while still alive aboard a ship. Uh, it would be different if we were to experience the fear of the animal. And I'm not necessarily certain that that would actually be better, because if we're talking about projecting an image of animals that we feel comfortable in a political discursive sense uh, coexisting on this planet with without committing cruelty against them, I don't necessarily think we want to show animals 
right, as like inherently sort of fearful, cowardly, incompetent, uh, always fleeing for their lives and helpless, uh, which is what brings me to Slippy from Star Fox. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Because Slippy from Star Fox uh, is probably the most negative stereotype of an animal that I can think of as being projected out there for political purpose. Slippy is totally helpless. Uh, Slippy is always scared. Slippy is always asking you for help, which reaffirms the the whole uh, you know Abrahamic tradition of uh, man as the as the sort of dominator and the the owner, the namer, the protector of the animals. This idea that human beings are stewards of animals and that our status on Earth uh, gives us a right to uh, do to the animals as we will, as might be further informed by a doctrine of the rational will, where you're thinking, okay, we have an elevated way of thinking about our moral responsibility, the animals don't. This gives us authority to do what we want with the animals. I feel like there's no video game parallel that more closely resembles the relationship than Star Fox's relationship with Slippy, uh, as he constantly (laughs) has to save that poor schmo. Okay, so let's yeah. rewind a little bit here. So for those who don't have vivid memories of playing Star Fox, right? Slippy, <laughs> What's Slippy, wrong with you? Do you have was, Alzheimer's disease okay. if you don't have vivid memory of playing Star Fox? Star Fox uh, is a space simulator game. Um, Slippy, Slippy, Star Fox is a simulator now? You know, space know. shooting game. You're in a spaceship and you're shooting stuff around, right? Um, Slippy was like the wingman who was a frog, right? And uh, with, He like, was the wingman who was a frog. That is true. He was a wing frog. Um, yes. And if one of the best things about that game and it's games of that era, right? Like rather than actually have a pre-recorded dialogue where the, the guy would say stuff, you would just sort of hear like ribbit, 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 right? Yeah. And the ticks would show up on the screen. Um, but just a reminder, Star Fox is about a fox who pilots, right? So another animal, the fox, is coming to the aid of, of the of the frog. Or, Pete, are you saying that the fox is supposed to be representing the human in this scenario? Well, this is an interesting – this is interesting because we're – what we want to talk about now is whether these symbols are correspondent. <laughs> Right, like, it, does does Slippy correspond to a given entity, and does Fox correspond to a given entity? And as such, then does the does this communicate things about those entities, or is the the trope and structure that concerns us here the relationship between Fox and Slippy? Right, like, the, so in in terms of the and then can we then transpose the relationship between Fox and Slippy like into other avenues? Uh, trying to think of like another ex- another example. Let's of- think of the other characters in Star Fox, right? I seem to recall yeah. some sort of like commander character who was a different breed of animal that uh, was like dog. evocative of authority, right? Yes, there is a dog. I'm actually I'm gonna I'm gonna Google Corneria Dog General, and we're gonna see what the guy's <laughs> name is. Uh, there are several dogs affiliated with the Cornarian army following General Pepper. General Pepper is the jowly dog that is in charge. And he, I believe he sometimes – does he sometimes wear sunglasses? No, he doesn't wear sunglasses. He just has very droopy eyelids that sometimes – oh, yeah, he does wear sunglasses, <laughs> um, which is hilarious. I think in the Super so Nintendo – The general was a dog. A dog wearing sunglasses. Yeah, like, I, w- like, I, w- I wouldn't have guessed that. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, no. stereoty- the stereotype of a dog being that of obedience, right, rather than, uh, yeah. than leading. Not just a dog, like a basset hound, hmm. uh, like a floppy jowl basset hound. Yeah, I guess. I mean, is he? A, he's like a a dog of the military, right? Um, now, where does that phrase come from? What? That comes from something. That's, that's a phrase. Yeah, 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 yeah. The dogs of the military is a, is a phrase. Um, I don't know. Somebody on the someone of the com- commenters um, can reference what pop culture. Uh, what pop culture property that comes from, if you know, and I'll look it up and we'll talk about it in the comments. But yeah, so like, I, you know, General Pepper can't do anything himself, 
right? He, but he's very self-important. So he sends the Star Fox squad out in the Great Fox with Rob 64 in the in Star Fox 64 to go fight uh, General – to fight Andros, Emperor Andros, who's a monkey, right? Um, and so – which is interesting because who's more human, right? That's very <laughs> right? Is that like – like, if there's sort of an uncanny valley of polygonal animal space pilots, <laughs> then, um, then, then general, then Ad- the Emperor Andros is the, is in it, right? Um, hold on, I'm, 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 I'm playing a lot of catch up here. I just did a Google image search for Emperor Andros, and I saw the polygonal, totally abstract face from, yeah. uh, the original Star Fox, and now I'm starting to see the pictures of him as a monkey. I was not aware of Andros being a monkey. Oh, oh no, no, he is. Um, in, Star, in the original Star Fox and Nintendo 64, you don't see his monkey face in combat with him until you blow up his polygonal face. And then there is a cube that emerges that has uh, sprites of the monkey face on its textures. Uh, and I believe the sprites Whoa. are partially rotated thanks to Mode 7 technology. Yeah, this is, this is pretty incredible stuff here. Go, go on. <laughs> okay. So we have a dog, right? And the dog has no – the dog, we don't respect the dog's agency, right? The Star Fox has the agency. The dog kind of commands Star Fox, but that's the beginning and end of the dog's responsibility, and that's General Pepper. Then you have Emperor Andros, who is a monkey, and by virtue of his species proximity to humans, is not human. Right, is sort of like aspirationally human and is not human. Star Fox is farther away from being human, but we identify more with Star Fox personally because um, the I guess the idea of either the idea of an anthropomorphic animal is more comfortable to us than a talking ape, right? Because talking apes are so often villains like Gorilla Grodd, uh, King Kong. You know, I guess King Kong can't talk, but he certainly has a certain mm. uh, degree of, of forethought, albeit not well-conceived forethought in how he pursues his goals. <laughs> um, uh, and, and so, Dr. Um, Zayas. Yeah, exactly. The Planet of the Apes. That's probably the biggest hit. Honestly, Andros, if you look at the Andros character design, when he looks like an, when he actually looks like a monkey, uh, if you're an ape, he, he really looks kind of Planet of the Apes-ish. He's kind of, oh, he has uh, like, yeah. big, he has a beard. He looks very Planet of the Apes-ish. He has a beard, he has, he has mutton chops, so he's kind of 70s-ish in that way. He's kind of Planet of the Apes meets Ming the Merciless. Uh, and he's got a big, he's got a big red collar on his cape. Right, like uh, that that uh, sort of extends to both sides of his floating head, huh. um, and then the other animals uh, are Peppy the rabbit, um, and uh, Falco the the bird, and Slippy the the frog, and those Fal- are the- Falco Lombardi, who's an Italian bird, apparently. Uh, yes, yes, Fal- not Falcor, Falco. Yeah, you're right. Falco Lombardi is Italian. This is <laughs> there's a lot of layers, <laughs> there's a lot of layers of polygons before we get to the heart of this thing. Um, this is like a really if dude, there are just master's degrees just lying to be picked up around Star. Were you about to say this is a slippery slope? <laughs> no, it's not a slippery slope. It's more it's more of a of a tunnel that you have to fly forward a series of rings. Um and if you do that, uh make sure you shoot that one asteroid so you can get the warp to the crazy zone. Um no, it's a series of squares that are rotating as they're flying towards you. Um It's a it's a it's a really frustrating thing you're supposed to accomplish, which you never really uh, work your way through and, and feel a constant sense of, uh, of regret and lack of accomplishment for many years afterwards. Oh, no, no, no that's just me uh, and my actual experience with Star Fox. It's not a metaphor for um, the analysis. Like, no, I never beat Star never Fox. Beat, that's not an easy one. Star Fox has like a bunch of different ways that you can I'm beat ashamed. it. I'm ashamed! Oh, we have to keep talking about Star Fox. The folks <laughs> listening at home, in case it wasn't clear, our plan was not to talk about Star Fox with this long on the podcast. Life it is just what happens happened. when you make other plans, Mark. <laughs> 
You mean the, po- the podcast is what happens when you make up <laughs> This is true. I'm going to call my landmaster, and we're just going to take this thing to town. Um, but yeah, no, no. So, so there we go. So I think they should be upset about why Slippy is, um, is, is a, little, a little froggy that is incapable of protecting himself. It is interesting that Slippy is by far the most prevalent of the wingman in Star Fox because he's the one who talks to you the most. And he's most often in need of uh, helping. Of Yes, definitely. Unless, he, of course, he gets killed, in which case, never mind. Whoa, you know. whoa, whoa, whoa. You're not, don't, don't spoil anything for the future installments of Star Fox. <laughs> I really hope that there's a Star Fox movie someday, and Slippy is killed in it, and it's, like, tremendously sad. Just, like, totally sad. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, um, is it not surprising that there ha- hasn't been a Star Fox movie at this point? I think that the Star Fox game where they did the dinosaur adventures probably put the nail in that coffin. <laughs> um, was it called Star Fox Dinosaur Adventures? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't think it was. I think it was just called Star Fox Adventures. Uh, let's see. Uh, I don't know. There was a dinosaur planet involved. Um, yeah, I think they kind of like doubling down on the dinosaurs. That's a little bit of double mumbo jumbo. Yeah, Star Fox Adventures Dinosaur Planet was the original title. But what, they kind of. What? The, no, the, the what Andros is a monkey, and that you know those are the villains, right? And where the dinosaurs come out of this? This is all very confusing. Yeah, it's it's a menagerie, man. There's a lot of menagerie in in uh, in children's entertainment, where it's just like, well, we started with animals, we gotta keep finding more animals, and, and then turtles, <laughs> of course, are my favorite. Where you know there's so many different kinds of animals: Usagi Yojimbo, Panda Khan, Genghis Frog. It just goes to crazy town, right? <laughs> I mean, I accept a world in which there's sort of a, a, a prevalent crime problem, and there's maybe like one group of ninjas and one group of turtles, and those turtles happen to be ninjas, and that's a stretch, right? Like, like <laughs> that much makes sense in terms of storytelling. But the, the thing is, as the Ninja Turtles and the Menagerie of the Ninja Turtles totally makes sense because they're drilled in at such a young age. I mean, I could have learned Spanish at that point in my life too, but I instead learned Ninja Turtles. <laughs> So, so this idea that you could have like multiple different kinds of fantastical animal creatures with various advanced technologies uh, coexisting in spacelands, um, yeah. Which, by the way, I've mentioned this on the podcast a couple of times, and I still need to go back and do. I totally want to rewatch Bucky O'Hare and the Toad Menace, uh, or at least track down the, the comic book and see if it's any good because I want to know if that keeps. Uh, sort of the original, I guess it might even have been the original inspiration for Star Fox. Bucky uh, O'Hare and the what? And the, the Toad Menace? And the Toad Menace? I don't think I was around for that episode, but that's a that's a Bucky oh, that O'Hare the and Toad the Toad. War- yeah. There's so many different. Each one of those, I feel like I want to like spend an entire podcast about each component of that title and break that down. <laughs> well, he's Irish, <laughs> or he's from Chicago, one or the other, because he's O'Hare. Well, Bucky, uh, also what the, the name of Captain America's psychic, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but anyway, yes. So, I, I, and you can be glad that I didn't go into Viva Pinata because then things would have gotten really messed up. <laughs> uh, there's all sorts of fun stuff about animals. Or just jumping on those turtles and kicking them into pipes. Like, that's not a very nice thing to do. Yeah. So, um, just, just one other quick thing on, on the subject of video games while we're on. I think actually we should keep, keep on the video game the topic yeah, for a little bit, right? right? <clears throat> we don't talk about video games um, enough. Something that I hear a lot about in the conversation, in the discourse around video games and sort of the next generation of uh, video game platforms as well as video, video games themselves, is there's this real discontent with the fact that uh, so many of the games coming out are still just the same, the variation of on a, on a few different templates, right? Driving games, shooting games, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's pretty much about it for in terms of action and that um, perfect space animals going to dinosaur planets. Yeah, you know. it's um, actually uh, fairly common. <laughs> like battle toads and whatnot. That's more like giant snakes. But anyway, so, so there's a, there's a lot of questions that, that I feel people are, are more uh, open to asking questions about why aren't there more games, for example, where you there's you don't have a gun, you don't you know have to go around killing people, just sort of like completely blow open the uh, you know blow past previous conceptions of what a video game is supposed to be about and how you can have fun in a video game and do something completely different right now it, it's it's pretty obvious why you know ga- games are so often about like, having a gun or blowing things up or shooting things right because it's, it's a very Washington there were thermite charges it was an inside <laughs> Sorry, no, it's it's a it follow is the money, sheeple. Follow the money. <laughs> it's a very direct uh, method for challenging the gamer, for giving the gamer a sorts of accomplishment, right? For just destroying the thing or killing the guy, right? I think it also um, has to do with carnival games being a, an antecedent to video games because they have a proscenium. Right. There's like a fourth mm-hmm. wall for carnival games. So it's a, there are carnival games that have been designed and are easy to translate into video games, like Hogan's Alley, like the old school shooters and whatnot. Uh, but anyway, continue, continue. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I don't have any great answers for like why that is or if there's a real sense of – a growing sense of discontent in this particular moment in video games. Um, but the, the more uh, – this concept has only fairly recently been introduced to me, and I'm really fascinated by it. And I'm sort of trying to challenge myself as well and think, like, well, what kind of games do I play that don't involve just sort of, like, wantonly destroying things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll talk – I mean, uh, do, do, you want, do you want to segue to the topic that we've pre-discussed, or do you want me to answer that question? Uh, like, answer the question, and let's go from there. Okay, so here, the video game that I most recently spent a lot of time with is Fallout New Vegas, which is about two years old. Uh, and Fallout New Vegas is one of these RPGs. It's a Bethesda RPG. It's Obviously, also a shooter, right? I, I mean, yes, in a sense. Like, it is... Um, it, it has, a, it has a, a, a hybrid combat system where you can try to play it as sign of a bad shooter where you're like running and gunning and you have a, and it's like got a first person view. Uh, it also has a, a system that they call VATS, which stands for like vault, uh, assisted targeting system. The acronym is not important, uh, where you can freeze the game and then you can sort of select the enemy you want to hit in the sort of in a turn based way. Mm-hmm. Um, shoot the enemy. But, I mean, it's complicated how you switch back and forth between them. I mean, but one of the notable things about it is that you really don't have to shoot uh, to get through the game. Hmm. Uh, there's a bunch of different ways that you can build your character. Your character could use guns. Your character can use energy weapons. Your character can use melee weapons. Your character can use, like, spiked gloves and other sorts of, like, unarmed martial arts combat or pseudo-armed martial arts combat. Uh, or, like my character, your character can get really high speech and science and repair and be able to talk to people a lot um, and use energy weapons. Uh, but uh, but it, uh, one of the things that really shocked me, I just finished the game uh, and I finished it a little early. I didn't want to do all the side quests. Really disappointed by the ending because they sort of complained at me about all the things that I didn't do during <laughs> the game in the closing cinematic. It's like, well, this side village and the side of the, and the edge of the desert was totally screwed because you were too lazy to go help them, you jerk. You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> I'm like, thanks, guys. I bought your game for entertainment. You give me a heap and help and a guilt. Uh, but the main thing was that I got to the final boss confrontation, right? Mm. Mm. And uh, I guess I guess I won't spoil too much about the game. It's not a huge because you can take a whole bunch of different paths through the game. You can side with pretty much any major faction of the game. And one of the big factions of the game is Caesar's Legion, which is sort of a Roman legion existing in the post-apocalyptic Mojave wasteland near Las Vegas mm-hmm. or New Vegas, right? So there's a is guy that a play on Caesar's Palace, perhaps. 
that's probably why there's a connection. Is that like there's an actual Caesar in Las Vegas now? Just like there's an actual king. There's like a guy who runs a gang of people who dress like Elvis called the Kings, and they're run by a guy named the King. Uh, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, it's pre- um, actually that's one of my favorite parts of the game, and I kind of wish that they'd flesh that out more. Like, I kind of wish that was the whole game. <laughs> it's like, well, can't I just be the Elvis impersonator? The idea is, it's great. Is that they don't they don't remember Elvis? They don't have any of his music. They just found this building that had a bunch of posters in it that had a picture of this guy, and that just said the King. Right, and they and they decided they extrapolated from this, and the building is called the King School of Impersonation, and they sort of <laughs> interpret impersonation as this sort of like quality of being a person, I guess. And they say, oh, this must have been a religion. This guy must have been some sort of spiritual leader. Uh, it's clear that these you know, guys glorified him, and he seems like a really nice guy. It wasn't not a religion. And he wasn't not yeah, some true. sort of spiritual leader. Yeah. And so this one guy who's kind of like a, a, a sort of a charismatic guy who actually wants better things for this pretty bad neighborhood uh, starts dressing like Elvis and making a gang of people who dress like Elvis and aspiring to what he – oh, and he finds like a couple of tapes of Elvis's voice and he starts talking like Elvis. Uh, and then the tapes wear out and they don't have them anymore. But anyway, um, there's a lot of like elements like that in the game where parts of Las Vegas get sort of pulled out and con- twisted into this post-apocalyptic way and like plug back in and one of those things is is uh is caesar's legion caesar's palace and so i i and i chose to go against caesar which is one of the ways that you can do the game and i get to the final boss who is one of the big bad guys you know in caesar's army um and uh i was able to reason with him (laughs) which was i mean Hmm. it was both refreshing and kind of disappointing (laughs) (laughs) Because I had maxed out my speech skill, and so I was able—I was able to be like, "Hey, you know this thing that you're going to be doing? Don't. <laughs> you know, why don't you oh. just not do this and do something else?" Oh, Pete, it just—it uh, gives me so much pleasure to hear that there's a video game where you, Pete Fenzel, can max out your speech skill. <laughs> That's pretty great. Yeah, I, just, had it, I, I had it I, way up there. <laughs> I enjoyed that a lot. It, it would be—it would be as if, like, in the same RPG where you can max out your speech skill, I can max out my oh, I don't know, guitar shredding skill. For example, oh, like totally. you know, various other uh, you know real life skills that we have, real life esoteric skills that we have. Do you um, ever play like a bard in like a Dungeons and Dragons game or anything like that? Um, I mean, I've played those sort of like uh, RPGs where you sort of choose a character class kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think I typically went with the sort of the, uh, the the middle of the road guy who could do a little bit of everything, a little bit of magic, a little bit of fighting. Gotcha. And you ever play the Back to the Future game, that like horrendously difficult NES game of Back to the Future? Because I think there was a guitar playing scene in that. No, could, like, t- no, I, I did not play that. Yeah, or else your family would disappear or you'd die or something. Um, oh, high stakes. But yeah, but, but, <laughs> but yeah, I was able to reason with him, and then I was able to reason with this, the other thing that happens, which I won't spoil. And it was just, it was kind of disappointing, but it was also kind of awesome. So there are ways to deal with these problems other than with, with guns. Um, I mean, guns provide an, an, an intuitive interface. Right, like yeah. I mean, you can make an argument that there's all sorts of, like, okay. So one one argument you can make is like, all right, uh, like what? Let's let's look at guns are phallic, right? Yes, um, yes guns they are. are. Shaped like phalluses, uh, like the comus, right, which is the the phallic object in the the ancient parades and celebrations, I believe in in Egypt that precede and inspire the Greek theaters, the the comus practice, uh, and, and so. Um, one thing that people talk about a lot uh, in, in kind of gender discourse is this idea that war is a masculine phenomenon, uh, which you can tell because all the weapons are shaped like penises. And so and they're constantly discharging. 
Yes, exactly. And they're constantly like sort of, you know, it's about, it's not about ma- making life, it's about taking life, it's about like sort of half of the human experience. Uh, and so one of the things I, I sometimes think of is like, well, and I mean, you know, this is kind of a weird thing to think of, but is once my friend, once our, my friend John asked, whenever my John, friend John uh, used to ask me, uh, Pete, have you ever thought of blank? And I've been like, John, I've been alive for a long time. I've thought of a lot of things. Like I have all sorts of crazy ideas. Uh, and one of them is like, well, if you were to design weapons that were to resemble vaginas more than penises, what would they look like? <laughs> How would you make a, a more feminist way of war? Um, oh. In terms of symbolism, not even feminist. Feminist is the wrong word because feminist implies like power structures, but like a more yawn way of waging war. I mean, landmines, I guess. <laughs> but, um, I mean, that's gross, and I don't want to get into that too much. Um, but the point is, the point is that uh, if we go with this idea that war uh, is based off of ritual that is based off of patriarchy uh, and that there's some sort of subliminal symbolism that follows from one practice to the other uh, that is very – it must be a symbolism that is very difficult to shake and that operates on vectors that are very – and levers that are very difficult to follow, uh, that are very difficult to thwart, right? And it, Otherwise, it wouldn't happen so pervasively. Mm-hmm. And so then you could say that this extrapolates from war to video games, right? From war through, say, sports, Right through fencing, you know, through biathlon and riflery, through javelin and whatnot. And these symbols that are part of these rituals that are part of patriarchy or whatever else is happening in the gender discourse, they it is easy to make video games out of them because they are heavily ingrained in our culture in ways that we can only begin to comprehend. And okay. that's why you have a zapper for duck hunt rather than sort of a big dish <laughs> um, that, that, that you reflect uh, the, the light from the TV screen um, back at it. But you know what I mean, right? Like, yeah, um, yeah, 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 it's yeah. like this would be an explanation for why so many video games have guns because it feels easy to design a video game that has a gun because the idea of pointing at something uh, and, and, and discharging is something that's very rooted in our masculine culture. Um, so yeah, and, and when we say it's easy, you know, it's it's easy to do that. I mean, there's a difference between something being easy versus something being what like irresponsible or or uh, not creative. Let's say in, in other different ways, right? Well, I mean, there is a, there is a way of looking at morality wherein the things that are difficult are good. Right. Um, I think that that is it's somewhat of a half baked notion. This I, I uh, one of my friends and I don't I don't mean to be cruel by doing this and I won't mention any names. But one of my friends had a conversation on his Facebook wall today about he wanting to have a combination uh, washer and dryer or like some sort of mechanism that allows the clothes to go from your washer into your dryer without you having to take them out because it's kind of annoying and gross to take your wet clothes out of the washing machine and put them into the dryer. And somebody on the, on the thread said, uh, oh, that's what our culture needs, something to make us even lazier. Right, something to make us, you know, something to make us even less industrious. Uh, and I was like, I don't think that there's a virtue to having two machines to do your laundry rather than one machine to do your laundry. <laughs> but there, there is an idea, and I think that that there, this is a straw man to an extent. And there are, you know, like you know, training for you know, Rocky training for a boxing match when he gets to go up in the mountains and lift the ox cart rather than Ivan Drago, who's with all these fancy sports scientists. And we have this tendency to think that the thing that Rocky is doing because it is more difficult. Uh, right, because it is like less 
uh, convenient because it is like, you know, both emotionally harrowing as well as uh, physically harrowing, that it will prepare him better for the boxing match and also that it is morally superior and yeah. that's mean that Rocky deserves to win. Um, so, yes, there is a, an argument to make and it's a cultural argument and I think it's an artistic argument uh, and, and it's based on kind of – there's a conservative way of looking at morality that's rooted in this idea of kind of a beautiful morality rather than a kind of rational morality that would say that, yes, the easier game to design is the inferior game to design. You should do better than that. Right, like mm-hmm. you should do better than that. You should be better than that. Yeah. You should make the game that isn't fun to make and isn't fun to play because you'll be a better person. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I probably quoted Kennedy uh, this particular Kennedy quote on this podcast before, but I'll say it again. He, he said we choose to do this this thing, which is to go to the moon, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. Or as he was, as John F. Kennedy would say, because it is hard. I mean, they could have right. chosen to go to the moon a hundred years earlier, and it would have been even harder. <laughs> Because <laughs> they wouldn't have had rockets. <laughs> I guess that's what Jules Verne has decided to do, right? Um, no, that, that, that speaks to what, like, in, in addition to what you said, this this, this broader concept of uh, the goodness of, of things, just because they're they're difficult, but also maybe specifically because of Kennedy's Catholicism, perhaps. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of things you could point to that are, that are coming out of that speech. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's related to what what Hillary said about Everest, I think, right? Like because it's there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's a similar attitude. But Hillary was a little bit more. Um, I think it was Hillary. I, I, if I misquote, I apologize. But he was a little bit more kind of sublime and tragic about it because he openly acknowledged, like, there will be no good that will be accomplished <laughs> for anyone by anyone climbing. Yeah. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. It will not improve the human race at all. Uh, to appreciate why I want to do this, you have to look at uh, the urge in humanity to, to leap past these great challenges. And I would say that if, even if you're looking at the moon landing, and, as a, and we're, we're like the, – the thing that we're comparing the moon landing and the, uh, and the climbing of Mount Everest to is what? Designing a video game that doesn't have guns in it. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Um, like it's basically making it probably Farm- doesn't, doesn't, sorry. <laughs> like making Harvest Moon, which inspires Far- Farmville, is like what we're talking about, which is like the ultimate, uh, the ultimate kind of like uh, Yannick womb uh, video game, mm. right? Like it's like you mm. raise things out of the earth. Um, but yeah, it's like <laughs> <laughs> the difference is that. Um, y- we're, y- the moon is not difficult to get to because we made it hard for ourselves. Right, like it's right, not difficult right, to right, get right, to right. because we saw an easy way, and we decided that we would be better people if we didn't take it. Mm-hmm. Right, like the moon is difficult to get to because it is really freaking far away and up in the sky where there is no air. Right? Like that is what makes the moon difficult to get yeah. to because of the force that is exerted by the giant uh, ball of molten uh, molten iron that we're standing on top of. Uh, you know, that's what makes the moon hard to get to. Not like our puritanism, <laughs> right? Like not like our uh, our industry and sort of not not the categorical imperative <laughs> right hey, um, Pete, so uh while we're talking about things that are difficult in video games maybe this is a good time to talk about a game that's so difficult you can't even play it at all oh man this game was so hard i tried to play this game this week <laughs> i couldn't get past the first difficulty level, level. hardcore mode <laughs> to enter hardcore mode wait for 97 minutes please yeah <laughs> Should I set it up and then uh, yeah, you can take it? Yeah, set it up. Set it up and knock it down, Mark. Take us to the bridge. Okay. Uh. <laughs> and build the bridge. And build the bridge. And also make sure that you build residential areas on one side of the bridge and industrial sectors on the other side. And electrify it all as well, too. Okay. Yeah, exactly. This is what we're talking about. In case you haven't heard, the newest version of the Sim City, Sim City simulation game 
uh, was recently released this week to much fanfare. People were very excited to play it. They were also uh, very wary of the fact that it had the always connected, always on DRM restriction to it, meaning that you always had to be connected to the internet because the game always had to be connected to the server in order for you to play it. Right. Um, there is some, uh, there, there's some gameplay elements that are sort of connected to it, but really the core of, of why this is here is to pre- prevent piracy because electronic arts, uh, as this sort of maniacal, uh, fixation on preventing piracy of this game. Whether that's justified or not, we'll probably talk about in a little bit, but, um, the game was launched, uh, more people were playing than electronic arts anticipated. The servers were completely, uh, you know, overwhelmed and uh, his, people were getting these messages saying like you know like a wait time of 75 minutes in order to play the game these sorts of things um, it's been a huge uh, PR disaster for Electronic Arts uh, gamers are really upset about it it's got I think the on Amazon.com as of recording this podcast it has a one star rating one star rating on Amazon.com that's mm-hmm. pretty bad um, another thing that's coming out of the story as well too is that there are rumors um, uh, un confirmed rumors it's difficult to pin down the source of this that electronic arts is paying people to go to uh, video game discussion boards blogs comments uh, comment forms uh, to uh, sort of combat the bad publicity and saying like basically the effect of like it's not that bad or i was able to get on and play the game and it's a lot of fun uh so uh, uh, needless to say a lot to talk about uh, mm-hmm. when it comes to this game when it comes to uh, the sort of video game culture and uh sort of the limitations of technology and entertainment so yeah pete what do you think uh well i'm going to start with a little bit of context uh so i want to give people a little bit of an idea of just how bad a one-star review is on amazon <laughs> please yes <laughs> so i'm going to read some reviews for a two-star product product uh the micro spy remote mini black seven buttons universal tv remote control and keychain <laughs> wait wait, was- wait 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 <laughs> TV remote control and keychain? Yes, it is both a keychain <laughs> and a TV remote control. Uh, I actually found this. I was like, well, what would Amazon potentially sell that would have one star? And I Googled broken TV remote Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and so here are some of the reviews of this two-star product. Uh, does not work. May 18th, 2012. Received the item. It did not work. Returned it for a refund. Never got a refund. <laughs> it's supposed to work with a TV any tv but it did not work with any of the five that i tried um let's see mine didn't work at all does not work uh very good very good and brand new which i love to use all the time you should get this also because it is very fun <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that's a human being that's, that's, works that's really. yeah works on certain old tvs december 27th 2012 Wait, how many stars is that uh, that's a three-star review, okay, so that's yeah, like yeah, yeah, effusive yeah. praise. But the thing is, like, there were many, many people who purchased this item, and it did nothing for them at all, and they received no compensation for it. Well, uh, it, and it, it held their keys, presumably. Yeah, and how much do you think this goes for, this this uh, novelty object? Uh, I'm going to guess uh, 25 bucks. Uh, yeah, the, the list price is fourteen ninety nine. You know what price you actually can get it on Amazon for? One dollar and ninety five cents. <laughs> so that is a hefty markdown based on demand in the market for this product. <laughs> so, so this product is better on average than <laughs> City, uh, in, on, according to Amazon. But yeah, so so this so this is the same problem that happened with Diablo. Right, or at least not because Diablo, Diablo you could get on Diablo three. Yeah. You could get on this is error thirty seven, right? You could get on Diablo three. There were long wait times. Uh, after the first couple days, it worked out fine. Um, I think that there is a. Uh, one thing I'll throw in here is that Diablo 3 did eventually work out fine, and people were still sort of excited about it, whereas excitement for SimCity appears to be 
dead. Right, like uh, well, I mean, we, we should talk about that. Maybe well, let's let's talk about it now. Right, I don't know if it, if it's dead. Like it, within the echo chamber that is the, the the video game blogosphere, right? People are are, are furious, frothing in the mouth of it and denouncing it. Right, um, I will freely admit that. Like a few months from now, I presume this will be cleared up. A Mac version will be released, and I kind of want to play it. Uh, like I, against probably my better judgment, I'm going to fork over the money. And play it because, from, I, from what I understand, like once you get past the whatever the, the these you know, entrance barriers are, like once you actually get to play it, it's it's pretty cool uh, and interesting and sort of a, a different kind uh, of city simulation there's been before. So right. I'm not going to say that it's like completely dead or now it might be a bit of hyperbole, but the press, the 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 PR right now could not be worse. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so so okay. So let's let's I think let's set out a little taxonomy, right? So the, I, I'm going to name there are four. Uh, online digital rights and content management platforms that I'm going to I'm going to bring up right now, right? And they are uh, the EA one is called Origin, yep. right? Then there's the Blizzard one. There's Battle.net on Blizzard. Uh, I'm just going to throw Xbox Live in there as an option because that's one that's that's very popular. Although Xbox Live is kind of a more of a platform than a content uh, and digital rights management system, but there's well, a you, lot you of can stuff. download games from Xbox Live. Yeah, right? yeah, but you could also uh, yeah exactly, and then Steam. Right, yeah. Uh, Seem for PC, and I would say in order of uh, uh, of sort of respect and kind of like you know cult customer uh, equity, without any statistics in front of me, I'd rank them: uh, Steam, um, Battle.net, Xbox Live, Origin. And Origin is like the worst, right? That like yeah. that EA has a terrible reputation for managing digital rights management and digital distribution of its video games, and just sort of um, like uh, getting connectedness working properly let's put let's put my interaction with ea origin is pretty limited a direct interaction with it is pretty limited it's it's actually uh, confined to the scrabble game on my iphone mm-hmm. which like has constant connection problems with yep. ea or with ea origin which uh handles the uh you know the connection of uh of multiplayer games um and uh just overall the experience of the game is so poor that everybody i was playing scrabble with has dropped it, and I only play Wars with Friends on my iPhone now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's pretty emblematic of VA Origin, right? Right, 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 right. I think, I think, well, I think, and I think you can also see, and just to put a hat on that I don't put on all that often, um, is that if you want to look, look at those, look at those uh, companies, right? You look at, you think about Valve, think about uh, Blizzard Activision, think about uh, Microsoft, yep. And think about uh, EA. Yep. And then if you were to look at how they're generally respected among investment people, right? And I, well, whereas... Uh, also the size, right? Well, yeah, I well, mean, EA, Microsoft, that's... that's uh, I was about to say, like, you know, as the company gets larger, its respect uh, diminishes, right? Mm. The, although the, the three and four slots are a bit reversed. Although you might say that Microsoft... Um, there, there's a way of, of, of looking at Microsoft uh, in the game space as being a bit smaller than EA, but maybe yeah, not I mean, in I mean, dollar I th- signs. I think it is worth saying that it is harder to run a digital distribution platform if you are a larger company. And EA, and EA has bought a lot of brands, right? EA has bought SimCity, right? Like EA didn't come up with SimCity. That's Maxis, yeah, right? Like, yeah. All that stuff. So um, – so EA, so EA is sort of a patchwork of different gaming brands, and Xbox is doing content delivery for a lot of different partners, um, and, and it's a large company. A large company has difficulty doing this, I think partially because they need to have economies of scale in order to justify uh, their existence, 
right? And and I'm you know, I don't know about you, Mark, but I think I think we both have a lot of familiarity of working with large organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as uh, one of the things that's true about large organizations in general, and I'm not saying this about any large organization in particular, you have to have a really considerable like dividend that you can draw from your economy of scale to run a large organization, right? Like uh, unpack that a little bit, just. Okay, so so like so, an economy of scale is when because you get to do something a lot, you get to do it more efficiently. Uh The idea that uh, picking a million apples per apple is a lot cheaper than picking ten, you know, which is and a hundred is easier than picking ten, and a thousand is easier picking a hundred, right? And the idea that the more apples you pick at one time, uh, the cheaper it is for you to individually pick the apples, which is why so many businesses tend towards consolidation into large players. I mean, yes, there's issues of pricing power monopolism, but like. In if you were to think of a market in which there is sort of open competition and there isn't necessarily collusion, there should be these economies of scale which cause uh, it to be advantageous to build, to specialize, and to be really good at building lots and lots of things. Mm-hmm. Um, large organizations do have a lot of inefficiencies, uh, and they're going to have a lot of people that need to talk to each other. They need to have a lot of oversight and infrastructure. There's certain very large costs that you have to have when you're running a large organization of people. Uh, Napoleon, right, like has to have his field marshals, and each field marshal can only ha- manage about like 125,000 people. So for the grand army of like a million people, you know, you need to have like a lot of infrastructure. You need to have meetings with all these people. All those field marshals need to have their own teams, and and it needs to go down the chain. And you need to distribute shoes and clothes, or you don't have to, and people will die walking to Russia. Like, you have all these <laughs> options. But the thing is that like large groups of people are hard to get to all march in one direction. And, and, so this is a, and so a small, dynamic startup can often do more exciting things than a large company because it's hard to get a large company moving, and there are a lot of infrastructure costs in dealing with making decisions and whatnot. Yep. So the you know the dividend, not like the financial dividend, but like the the money that you gain from your economy of scale has to be a lot uh, in order to uh, make up for the way the wastes and inefficiencies of being large and right, the all the associate vice presidents they have, they have to pay for. Yeah, and the reality of it is, yes, it is very large, right? Like there is a large economy of scale in most things, uh, and that is one of the reasons why businesses tend towards consolidation. And it, and so let's and so we'll talk about. Uh, content delivery systems, and why is it that small companies seem to do digital rights management and content management systems and content delivery systems better than large companies? Why did Apple come up with iTunes, right, like at the beginning? I mean, Apple is huge now, but back when it was coming up with iTunes, it was much smaller, right? Like, mm-hmm. So why was it that Apple, why is it that we, we use iTunes and not the Zune system when iTunes was coming out? You know, Microsoft was such a huger company than Apple. Apple was such, such a smaller company than Microsoft. Why is it that they won in that space, right? And um, why is it that they were content, part of it is they were content with a smaller market share. They could make less money in the, in the market, I guess, and it would still be okay. Um, part of it is that... Uh, the distribution systems that you're using can reach lots and lots of people. So a content, you know, Steam can deliver games to lots and lots and lots of people at once. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the advantage, an additional advantage of scale that a larger player like EA has in distributing its games, uh, I mean, it doesn't necess- it's harder to achieve an economy of scale advantage over Steam in terms of the cost of distributing the games. Right. right? Uh, and so... EA really wants to make that advantage because EA is bigger, EA is publicly traded, which Valve is not, I believe, and I can double-check that. Uh, So it has pressure to deliver earnings for its stockholders, cut down on its costs, with the result that I think that Origin is like underinvested in based on what it's trying to accomplish and deliver all of these different games that EA is making from all these different companies that it's acquired. Um, And it's just, it's kind of a patchwork, whereas Valve is much more focused. 
uh, and, and it can pick its pick its shots. You know, it's still delivering Team Fortress Two to lots of people. Let, let, you know, let, me, like, let me ask a, a question to sort of to, to set the stage for the piracy discussion. Now, yeah. What you described there, like the the economics of it, and that's all germane and very important to understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, but sort of the the big question on at hand here is piracy, right? And the, this idea that you're treating your consume your customers as potential thieves versus actually customers, right? Uh, that's the, the criticism that's been levied against EA for its draconian DRM system. I mean, there are um, many criticisms levied against EA, and not all of them are legitimate. But yeah, sure, that's one of them, definitely. Right. So just. In terms of the Steam system and the DRM that's there, like, do you have a sense of how big of a problem piracy is of games that are distributed through Steam, like the Half-Life 2s and the Left 4 Dead 2s and whatnot? Uh, I mean, Gabe Newell is on the record saying that he sees uh, piracy as a service problem rather than as a... Uh like that if you have if that if you have people who are pirating your game in large numbers it means that you're not providing the game to your customers in the way that they want it now this he's not necessarily unbiased right because he has every interest in making steam look like a solution to piracy uh, which it isn't piracy rates are still very very high uh for all these games and i think the question sort of shifts the dialogue sort of shifts to not how can I prevent people from pirating my game, but more how can I convince people to pay for it at all? Mm-hmm. Right? How do, how do I get people to pay for my game rather than just getting it for free? And this is why brand loyalty is so important. Favorability is so important. I mean, we've talked a little bit about why there are no new video games. I think one of the reasons for this is that people will pay for video games that they love. Uh, you know, if, if you are you really going to pirate? You're more likely to give money to Portal because you love Portal than to like you know. I mean, maybe you have never played an Uncharted game before, right? You have no special affection for Uncharted. I mean, that's a bad example because that's also a franchise that's been going on forever. But like, let's say you're playing like you know, I don't know, like Dead Island. Right, like, uh, and it's like, okay, I, I, there's this zombie shooter fighting thing. Uh, I'm not really familiar with it. Uh, it looks pretty gory. I kind of want to try it. Uh, I guess I might torrent it and see if it's any good, as mm-hmm. opposed to like, you know, you know, Skyrim, and it's like, oh, I love the Elder Scrolls. I'm totally get pre-ordering that, right? And so there's right. this idea that favorability leads to purchase consideration, right? And that you can people can give you money. There's also the idea. There's like the Amanda Palmer TED Talk where it's like, you should ask people to give you money. <laughs> Um, and if you ask people to do things, they'll give you money and you don't have to give them money. Uh, and that's a little bit more controversial, but it's definitely part of the discourse too, where it's like, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a postmodern discourse around companies convincing people to part with their money voluntarily. Yeah. The just, idea of microtransactions, stuff like that. Yeah. Just a very quick aside. And when you bring in, in the music business, which also is obviously very affected by piracy, um, experiments on, uh, like voluntarily, uh, paying what you want, for music, which is very different from what Amanda Palmer is doing for in terms of Kickstarter, uh, but is it sort of an alternative distribution model that's kind of meant to, to combat piracy? Um, right, Radiohead and I think you two have experimented with this, and I just I haven't looked into this in depth, but from what I understand, like they have really soured on this idea and have basically uh, have been turned off uh, from it because of too many freeloaders. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. No, and, and so like. Yeah. It's disappointing, but just sort of a, a, a bit of a slap in the, in, in the face and sort of return to reality for the economics of the sort of distribution yeah. systems. Yeah, I mean, so here's an article from PC Magazine in, tw- in 2012, August of 2012. Oh, that's still uh, around? Sorry. <laughs> uh, oh, no, sorry. It's computerandvideogames.com that uses the same color scheme as PC Magazine. <laughs> um, and it's their PC. It's their, there's, a, there's a logo that says PC News at the top, or there's a little menu that says PC News at the top. Um, and it says, and it's from the... Um, 
it's from Ubisoft saying that which makes Assassin's Creed um, and said that uh, ninety more than ninety percent of their of their uh, PC games are pirated. So for every PC game they sell. Uh, there's nine version, nine, nine copies, uh, of, copies it. of it that are pirated. Wow. And this is one of the reasons. There's, there's, a, there's like a battle in uh, gamer circles about PC versus console, right? And the idea is that, well, PC games can afford to be so much more advanced than console games because PCs, if they're really good, can have much more advanced hardware than consoles can have, and they have more u- usability features. But console games are still played by a lot more people and are a lot more lucrative, and part of that is that they are a lot harder to pirate. I mean, you can hack your Xbox and whatnot, but a lot fewer people are interested and hacking their Xbox, then like, oh, I'm on my PC anyway. I might as well torrent this thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, not that I'm advocating it. I'm certainly not. I mean, I don't play that many games. And I bought, I bought Fallout New Vegas at Target for $19. <laughs> so it's not like, you know, for me, it's like for every game Pete purchases, he buys two garbage cans and, and, a, uh, and, a, and a pan to cook liver and onions in. Um, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but no, piracy is a huge issue. The platform that the game is on affects the piracy. Uh, and, and so free-to-play is a huge model. Free-to-play with microtransactions is a huge model because of piracy. That much is, seems pretty self-evident at this point. Um, now, Blizzard used Battle.net first for MMOs, right? And the idea is a subscription model. Right. Right? So you have a subscription model, and if I pay by the month for constantly new content, then I'm not, I don't have to pirate. I mean, I, pirating isn't part of that whole exchange. Yeah, they eventually and, gave away World of Warcraft for free, right? Yeah, exactly. And free to play, free to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they also use Battle.net in order to protect uh, this, like, the tournament business from unlicensed tournament promoters. Right, and to try to right. maintain some sort of control over how tournaments for their games were going to be held. It's, it, a lot of it is to try to screw over KESPA, which we've talked about before, and yeah. try to get, get Korean Esports Association, that cartel, out of the business. Um, Origin appears to just be about piracy, right? Um, Origin, I, I don't think Origin, has, EA has made any sort of argument that makes any sense to me other than like, oh, it was always on DRM is just better. It was one of the things that they say a lot, right? And one of the things well, really? They say that? Well, they said that in that article, right? Like uh, that we were ta- that we were reading about the um, the Chinese spammers that they were necessarily not necessarily hiring. That like the um, uh, yeah, well. like we wouldn't need to hire spammers to promote our games on the IGN boards because we all know that DRM is always better, right? And it seems like well, that's the that's the phrase, that's the talking point that they were given. The corporate communications guy in me is like, well, that's what they were told to say, and that's what they're <laughs> going to repeat until they're blue in the face. Um, nobody really believes that always on DRM is always better, and in fact, I would say that. That if you use the term DRM, you're already talking about something that people say isn't better. You have to, if you want to frame the value, the positive value proposition of DRM, don't use the phrase DRM. Nobody likes it. All it does is make people angry. Yeah. So you need to come up with, well, what is the actual tangible benefit that really matters to people? These are smart people who play your video games, right? Like these are people who are sitting at home reading and not going outside. <laughs> no, I shouldn't in, say the, in the case of City SimCity, it's actual city planners. <laughs> like yeah. People, people like myself who work in, you know, who work in designing cities. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. In, I mean, in, like, a, in a physical sense as well, sort of a conceptual are sense. Are your but. colleagues, is like SimCity on the radar for, your, for you and your colleagues? I mean, don't go into too much detail about it, but it's just like a yes or no. Uh, in, in a word, yes, and I've advocated that I, I should be able to bill uh, the firm, uh, my management consulting firm, for hours spent playing SimCity. I don't think that really went over that well. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, man. Oh, the uh, EA has offered a free EA game to SimCity customers as compensation for the connection issues that have prevented users from accessing the gameplay. That uh, to quote Shirley from Community, oh, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> no, not nice. Oh, man. But yeah, they say the number of disrupted experiences dropped by roughly 80%. 
well, that's really nice. I mean, I, 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 I don't doubt them when they say that, you know, the, 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 the they're smoothing out the kinks, right? And it's, yeah, they're yeah. working out the technical issues. Cause that's what it is, right? It's, you know, it's, it's servers, it's resources, it's software. Like, you know, we we're criticizing them a lot, but I'm not going to say that they're so grossly incompetent that they're not going to be able to figure this out yeah. after a few days, weeks. Yeah. And so, so to sort of close the loop on something that I was talking about before, if I were to think about how the companies are held in esteem by people who might potentially, you know, how are they performing? Um, I mean, I would order them like, you know, people, people generally respect Blizzard Activision and are really kind of concerned about uh, their inability to sort of move the needle and drive their earnings forward. Right. And I mean, don't take this as any sort of advice on anything. I'm just repeating what I hear on other podcasts. Don't make investment decisions based on this stuff. I'm not talking professionally. Oh, my God. If you're making investment decisions no. based on the overthinking of podcasts, you are, uh, you, you have, well, yeah. <laughs> you, got, you got some issues. Yeah. yeah, yeah Talk but, to us. Email us at podcast at overthinking.com. But I would say that EA is not held in esteem as a business. And so, so one of the things, when people say, oh, they just do this DRM to make money. Like, oh, they just do this DRM, DRM to make profit. Uh, I have a problem when people say that because I think they're missing the point, uh, which is that it isn't working. <laughs> right? It's that, like, the reason that you need to fix the DRM issue is not because you need to focus less on profit. It's that you need to focus more on profit, and you're not making it when people aren't buying your game because it doesn't work. Right? And, and so the, <laughs> the video game industry is very cyclical. Hits are huge. Misses are pervasive. Mm -hmm. You need to have the hits, and in order to impress, in order to succeed as a business, you need to have the hits consistently, which almost nobody ever does, right? And so, and so, Blizzard for a while was the golden child because it had World of Warcraft, and that's kind of flattening out. And I've talked about this in the podcast before. But the thing is that, like, if EA is trying to gain an advantage in economy of scale by skimping on the infrastructure support that they give Origin, that might be a poor business decision because they need these launches to be flawless. Right, like they need these launches to work in order to be best in class. Right, uh, and like in order for SimCity, and you want to be the megalopolis. You don't want to just be the podunk town with five nuclear reactors for every apartment building. Although that was always fun to set Godzilla loose in. I always appreciated that. Right, but you're, you're assuming that the that you know, they're going to go ahead and make this decision that they're going to need the always-on DRM, which uh, is is going to require the large number of server resources. Right. Well, yeah, you're, just, yeah. you're just sort of like re resigning yourself to like that. You know, that is just sort of the, the new normal in some ways. Like we, we, I don't like here. We could talk a little bit about that phrase. I hate the word the new normal. Um, Let's I think, talk about that. Yeah, why yeah, is that? I hate the term new normal. I hate the term the new normal because it it makes a what the the reason people say it's in general. I think when they choose to to consciously use that word, um, like the people who sort of originated its popularity and sort of spread its popularity, they use it because they're trying to convince you that the current situation is stable, right? The idea that like things have been crazy, but now they're going to be the same, right? Right, and, yeah. and there's an implication that things used to be the same. There's this idea that, oh, man, things used to be so stable and everything used to move along like clockwork. And then everything went crazy. And, and uh, we've been living in this situation where everything is crazy and now it's going to be stable again. And I think this misremembers history and there's a lot of cognitive dissonance. Even when times are good, things are crazy. <laughs> right? like, I, I hear you on that, but yeah. I, I just – 
at the risk of pointing out the obvious, right? Like it, there was a time when things were not crazy, and you could say that that was basically the, the the information world prior to the internet, right? Where the piracy was limited by what you could copy onto a floppy disk and hand over it to your friend, right? And then the internet made things crazy, and then there there you can understand at least understand the desire amongst. Uh, the people who create software to create some sort of new normal in, in the sense that like you know the the that the the piracy problem is understandable and i'm not going to say controllable but like uh less of a sense that is like that that what nine out of ten number that you talked about well uh, yes but but what i'm saying is that it there are millions of copies of e t the extraterrestrial buried in the New mexico desert wait right? wait what like okay, so I'm talking like <laughs> um, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, the Atari game from 1982, right? Uh-huh. One of the most famous video game failures of all time, right? Uh, it, you know, it it was a horrible. I don't know if you ever played this game. I actually played this game back in the mid 80s. Uh, it's ungodly, right? It is it is the most unpleasant experience you will ever have playing a video game. Uh, E.T. falls in holes constantly and has to use his unwieldy elevation powers to lift himself out of the <laughs> Uh, and sounds the, riveting. I don't yeah, know what the problem was. It's very unintuitive, and it makes no sense what you're supposed to do at any given time. It's maddening, uh, and it was a huge launch. This is the this was the highest grossing film of all time when this video game came out at like the height of the North American video game boom. And by 1983 and 1984, Atari was devastated. The company was totally on the ropes pretty much at a, in a death situation. And until Nintendo came along, it looked like video games were just over, mm-hmm. right? Right, right, right. Uh, we don't tend to think about the mid-'80s as a hugely tumultuous time for the video game industry. We don't tend to think about the g- biggest players in, in, the, in the industry being laid low by, like, a problems of game design, which it seems to be the last thing that should be laying low people, like that the most dependable titles are totally failing. I'm saying that there is a there is an emotional sense in the phrase "the new normal" that trivializes the cataclysms that happen regularly, right? And and that's what I mean. I'm not saying we can we can say the same thing. We can say people are looking for a uh, a revenue model with some long term possibilities. They're looking for a revenue model that will survive some fashion cycles. They're looking for a way of pricing video games that is going to get some legs and catch on with people and is going to last for a while, right? Yeah. But you say it's the new normal. There's like an Orwellian quality where you're trying to calm people down about it. And, and I don't like that. That's what I don't like about it. I don't like describing the idea of there being new paradigms because there are totally new paradigms, and sometimes those paradigms last for a while. But I, what I'm saying is that when you call it the new normal, you're implying that, that it's not going to be crazy. Mm. Right? I like the idea of me being uh, Orwellian, using Orwellian tactics to, uh, <laughs> to placate the masses that are listening to our podcast. Um, well, but I totally I, – I, 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 I hear you on your criticism of the new normal, so um, uh, continue. Uh, well, so, so what I'm saying is that like, that like the video game companies don't – like EA can't afford to find uh, just any solution to its DRM problem. They can't – and their DRM problem being they have come up – they have come up with a way of branding their online content delivery service that everyone hates and has terrible brand equity, right? <laughs> like a terrible favorability and terrible purchase consideration, which is like, hey, you want to buy this game that has been crippleware? <laughs> you know, it's just a terrible word and I shouldn't use that word, but it's like, do you want to buy this game that we deliberately made worse because we hate you, right? Like, 
<laughs> um, and it's like, do you want it? And it's it's called SimCity, and it's great, and you can't play it, and it doesn't work. You know, like um, I'm saying that it's not just a matter of whether you do DRM or not. You need to find a way of of making this thing work and framing it that makes people happy to buy it. And, you know, that's kind of what Steam is, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, and I feel like I've talked about this on the podcast before, and I don't want to be redundant about it, but these, these things, they evolve, they do change slightly, and SimCity is the latest, the latest example of it. It's only going to get more pervasive. But it's an idea of both like under-investing in it in terms of, of money and technology, but also under-investing in it in terms of talent, you know, in terms of who are the smart people who are trying to figure out this problem. You need an elegantly designed solution. I mean, that's what iTunes is, right? Like, that's what the iPod is, is, is a design solution to uh, technological distribution. Well, in some ways, to our point, right, iTunes at one point was an elegantly designed uh, solution <laughs> and has become this unwieldy, bloated uh, amalgamation of like App Store and Music Store and Music Player and Media Manager that is uh, kind of slow and crappy now and people aren't yeah, very happy I- with it. Uh, yeah, that's that's what happens when like operations and product takes over for vision, right? And it's just mm. like, uh, it, it's 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 a it's. I mean, I understand the desire to redesign every couple of years because you need it to be new so people don't jump to a new service. Like you don't want to get MySpaced with everybody being like, "Oh, what's this new shiny thing? Bye!" And, you know, just mm. leave. But yeah, iTunes is new. iTunes is awful. And I mean, but they but it's like you need to find something exciting and new to get people's attention. And there's no easy way of doing that because whatever is new and exciting hasn't been come up yet. Come up with yet? That's why it's new and exciting. So it's it's not just enough for them to do Steam over. They, if EA wants Origin to be something that people will be excited to buy games from, then they need to figure out an actual value proposition rather than just talking up their terrible one. Yeah, um, I, I think allowing you to uh, eat whale meat inside a Vita game, that's a good value proposition. Totally. Yeah, definitely. I mean, people love to stand by the ocean, right, and like to stare out at the whales. That's <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> that's where our oil will come from in future generations. Right? It's, um, mm, tasty and delivering in how energy. Sad it, how sad is it that we had a podcast that heavily referenced Moby Dick that Stokes wasn't on? Stokes, for those of you who don't know, Stokes loves Moby Dick like, uh, like the boat loves love. Like Mark loves Terminator? <laughs> Yeah, pretty well. Maybe not quite that much, but uh, <laughs> but quite a bit. I love it too. Um, but yeah, but until until they figure something like this out, a sustainable revenue model uh, for in a in a heavy piracy world is going to be a white whale that these video game companies are going to be chasing. Ha, nice, well and played, Pete. Well played. Yeah. When they find it, they shouldn't kill it. His <laughs> fur is murder. <laughs> Um, what, yeah. do you think, what, what do you think we, we, we bring the ship back into port here? Uh, I, I, look, if my heart were a cannon, I would. If my chest were a cannon, I would shoot my heart upon this podcast. <laughs> All right, the line must be drawn here. This far, no far. <laughs> now we're just jumping from property to property. Um, but alas. Uh, all good things, to once again do a Star Trek The Next Generation reference, must come to an end, as does this podcast. But do not despair, for uh, just as there will be another Assassin's Creed 3, another SimCity, another Uncharted, another all of these things, there will be more of content of this wonderful sort made by the uh, rapscallion cast of characters that you know and love. Just visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.
my God, Star Fox, I'm being chased by these things. Help me. Help me. Stop. Out now, Star Fox. Why? Get away from that ring. Go away. You don't need those bonus shields. You need to help me right now, Star Fox. Ribbit, ribbits. In, in a Star Fox universe where Slippy is played by a Harvey Fairstein, who plays Star Fox? <laughs> uh, well, probably Jeff Goldblum if we go with the Independence Day solution. Yes. Which is the solution that yes. I, always- I love it. Let's do it. <laughs>